In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we are going to talk about water purification. We're going to talk about declination and compass adjusters. And if you've no idea what that means, stick around. It could be useful to you. Welcome, welcome to episode 85 of Ask Paul Kirtley. I had to think a minute there, <laughs> which one we're on? 85 already. Um, so this new series we're getting into quite nicely now. And uh, thank you for sending in questions. Um, to be honest, I'm still working through some of the old questions. Um, I'm pretty much there now in terms of the ones that I feel like are suitable for the for the show. So if you've sent questions in in recent weeks, they will be coming in the next few shows for sure, um, if I think they're uh, relevant. And I try and include as many as possible, of course. Um, so let's have a look. Water purification while bike packing. Ah, this notebook's locked itself again. Hold on. Problem with all these security settings. Um, all right, so this is an audio question via the speak pipe. Hi, Paul. Uh, I came across your blog uh, while searching for information on water purification and uh, the systems in the UK. Now, I'm just I'm getting into bikepacking, which is long distance biking uh, with camping, and uh, I've come across various water the water streams on the side of the roads, and uh, people have been saying people have been talking about uh, things like dead animals and that sort of stuff. Uh, which I'm a, I presume causes viruses, but I'm not, well, leaves viruses, but I'm not sure. Uh, and I just wanted to know if you had any experience on this, is whether there was a viable system that you know of that uh, can purify that stream water. Um, and I'm mostly learning, look, looking to learn because I do plan on, within the next year or two, uh, cross, uh, travel across Europe on the bike. Uh, so I'm probably going to run into a bunch of different situations like this. So I kind of want to use this as a learning experience. So please let me know if you have if you have figured anything out about this. Thanks. Bye. All right. And that's a question from two different names there. Possibly Marco. Well, thank you for the question. Good question. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the things that's coming out, starting to come out of this latest run of Aspel Kirtley's is one of people asking for people either asking some very general questions or asking some very specific questions and out of that coming in my answers I hope some general principles that um, that we can then escalate to a specific answer to a specific question but also hopefully addresses the the general concerns. And the general point I'll make here is that fundamentally the question that's been asked here about water purification for bikepacking is no different to water purification for backpacking, water purification for any other mode of self-propelled transport through a landscape in very general terms. All right. Okay. So 
what I mean by that are there are a number of things that we need to concern ourselves with. And you'll notice that I often, like the question last time about um, getting clothing wet, like work back from where you don't want to be to what you need to do to avoid that um, in a reasonable way in and in, in a reasonable likelihood, okay? So we don't want to get ill when we're journeying, right? We don't want, you know, we don't want to be seriously ill, full stop. We don't even want sickness and diarrhea when we're trying to journey. Um, contributes to dehydration, poor nutrition, poor hygiene, as unable to continue our trip, all of those things, right? We don't want any of that. We don't want upset stomachs with things coming out of either end that we we don't want. We don't want to be vomiting, we don't want diarrhea, we don't want upset stomach. We want to be able to take on the nutrition we need. We want to be at rest. We want to be hydrated, all of those things. So what are the problems that we're going to encounter anywhere with water? Um, floaty bits, material that's suspended in the water um, that can harbor other problems, but can also simply just irritate our gut. Um, you'll often see the word turbidity. So if water is turbid, it's cloudy, right? With particulate matter. So that could be fine silt, sand, dirt, earth, etc. It could be organic matter decaying. It could be uh, vegetation that's already in the water um, decaying. It could be vegetation that's fallen into the water decaying. Um, it could be down to other uh, pollutants as well, and we'll come on to that. But basically, floaty bits. Yeah. Even if there's nothing else in there that's going to cause us some issues, if there's a lot of particulate matter that can irritate our line, the lining of our stomach. So we don't want that. And that's fairly easy to deal with. Um, chemical pollutants is another one, particularly if you are near to um, industry or you're near to habitation. And we'll, we'll look at that. So that could be anything from pesticides, fertilizers, heavy metals, uh, petroleum products, all sorts of things, right? Um, and then we've got pathogenic um, organisms, if you like. We can group together parasites, so um, things like liver flukes, that type of stuff, and protozoa under P, if you like. So protozoa and parasites. Now protozoa are things like giardia and cryptosporidium. Um, they're easy to filter out, um, but they're quite hard to kill with, by other means. Um, although we can kill them by other means, they're hard to, to kill by other means compared to some of the other pathogenic organisms. Then we've got bacteria, so going down in size, protozoa are quite big. Um, we've got bacteria. Um, there's a broad range of bacteria around. And bacteria are largely what we need to worry about in terms of making us sick to a lesser or greater extent in pretty much any place we're going to go. Um, you know, nowhere is sterile, right? So. You know, there's bacteria everywhere. So there might not be protozoa, there might not be giardia in the water, but there's probably bacteria in the water. Yeah. Whether or not there's enough of a load to make you sick of the right type of bacteria to make you sick is a different matter. But yeah, there will be something there. And then of course we need to worry about viruses. Now, um, viruses are very, very individual, like virus particles, if you like, if you want to phrase it that way. And that's quite not quite the right phrase. Um, but they're not, they're not independently living organisms, right? They replicate once they get into us and attach to cells and, and whatnot, right? So an individual sort of virus is very, very small and it's very difficult to filter out. Um, 
nigh impossible to filter out with like a pump filter or something because the filter has to be so fine that you struggle to get the water through it, particularly if it's got any turbidity in it. Um, but viruses are often attached to things. They're either attached to dirt, like feces, for example, um, or they are attached to, um, they could be uh, within a bacteria, for example, and we can deal with bacteria. Also, generally viruses are easy to kill um, with means like um, chemical sterilization and uh, heat. Uh, very easy to, to just deactivate the viruses. All right, so those are the things we need to worry about. Turbidity, chemical pollutants, parasites of protozoa, bacteria, and viruses. Right? Whatever we're doing, whether we're canoeing, backpacking, bikepacking, whatever. Yep. So then how do we deal with that? Okay, turbidity, you just need some sort of coarse filtration, some fine enough that it will get rid of the silt, um, but it's not necessarily going to get rid of uh, protozoa, for example. Right. So, classic example is the Millbank bag um, or the brown bag uh, that, that uh, Rupert Brown now makes, or the Millbank bags, and there's a few other makes out there as well. Um, it's a very, it's a finely woven canvas bag that you soak wet, you put dirty water in it and it drips out the bottom and it leaves a silt inside the bag. You can improvise things like that as well. Trouser leg, um, number of bandanas, um, other, other improvised filters as well to remove turbidity, you know, the sort of survival filters. I'm not going to cover the survival filters because we're talking like, what are we going to do? What are we going to use intentionally on a journey? Right. You know, and that involves us taking some systems with us. It's not like we're just suddenly parachuted into the middle of nowhere and we're going to make water safe. It's like with this particular case, bike packing. Right. So someone's going to leave a comment underneath about using a pop bottle, using a you know Coke bottle or a lemonade bottle, seven up bottle with some sand and charcoal and moss. Yeah, I, I know all of that stuff and you know, three layers of dripping down on a tripod. Yeah, that's great, but we're not gonna use that if we're bikepacking through Europe, right? So it's irrelevant to answering this question. Um, so before, before we go down that path, right? Um, so something we can take with us very simply is uh, we could take an independent thing, which is like a filter bag um, that can, if, if it's visibly turbid, we'll put the water through that. Also the intake of some more complex filter systems has some maybe fine metal gauze on it that will exclude that particulate matter from going into the rest of the filtration system. And if it's not fine enough, you can make it fine enough by putting some fine material around the end, like a piece of um, parachute silk or something around the end of the intake nozzle to stop stuff going in. It'll make it harder to pump, but it will stop the particulate matter going in. It will stop uh, the filter getting clogged, um, etc. So that's, how you get rid of the turbidity, you just stop it getting into what you're doing next. Now, a very, very simple way of dealing with all of the pathogenic organisms is heat, yeah, which means boiling. And there are two rules really you need to remember about boiling. If you are below 2000 meters, which approximates 6000 feet, I know it's not exactly the same, but 2000 meters you just bring the water to a rolling boil. Yeah, so the, the type of thing, you know, you're about to put some eggs in to boil or your kettle's about to switch off on the automatic electric kettle. It's vigorous rolling boil, visible boil. 
um, as a friend of mine says, big bubbles, no troubles. Okay, just rolling around, okay? Below 2,000 meters, that's all you need, rolling bowl, because by the time the water's got up to boiling, everything's been killed, everything's been neutralized. You can run it for a minute if you want, but don't waste fuel. Particularly if you're running a, a stove, you don't want to run it for 10 minutes because that's going to waste a lot of energy and you've got to carry more fuel or resupply or what have you. And it's not good for the environment either, right? So um, rolling boil for like up to one minute is all you need, right? But as long as it comes to a rolling boil, everything's already up to the temperature that it needs to be to kill it, yeah, including cryptosporidium. Um, if you are over 2,000 meters, rolling boil for three minutes minimum. Three to four minutes is absolutely fine. You don't need to go more than four minutes, okay? Um, and this is based on advice that's on the CDC website um, and other good sources in terms of what will kill. And the reason we need to boil for longer above 2,000 meters, above 6,000 feet, is because the air pressure is lower. It means water boils at less than 100 degrees Celsius. It boils at a significantly lower temperature. And so um, it's around about that, that 6,000 feet, that 2,000 meters is around about the cusp where some of those harder to kill uh, things like cryptosporidium, maybe we'll get through with just bringing it to a rolling boil. So if you rolling boil it for longer, you beat the things into submission, as it were. You put more energy into there, you will kill off anything. It might be able to withstand being brought up to 94 degrees for um, instantaneously, but not for five minutes, so not for four minutes, not for three minutes. So um, that's why you want a rolling ball for longer. Okay, so above, that's that dividing line of 2,000 meters or 6,000 feet. Okay, so boiling, big bubbles, no troubles, that will kill everything. Yeah, viruses, bacteria, protozoa, it'll kill parasites. The other thing about parasites, of course, things like liver fluke, you know, the eggs and things, your, your pre-filtering will get rid of those anyway. It won't necessarily filter out protozoa unless, or bacteria or viruses unless they're attached to the dirt. So the pre-filtering of, um, of turbidity will also reduce the load of pathogens that you then have to deal with, okay? And heat is a really good way of dealing with um, of dealing with the pathogens. It won't deal with chemical pollutants. So um, like stuff that is dissolved in the water and f or fine enough to get through that um, coarse level of filtration will still be in there. So if you're particularly worried about things like pesticides, then maybe you need another solution. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But in terms of dealing with most wild places, if it's turbid, just pre-filter, boil that's an absolute bomb-proof solution. So that's one way of dealing with things, whether you're boiling with a campfire, stove, whatnot. There are considerations around fuel, of course, with which method you might want to use, but I won't get into that. It's just like, how do we deal with it? Um, then, okay, other solution, a very good robust solution, particularly now that you can get some very compact light systems, is some sort of pump system, okay? And what that will do, it, as I say, it might have something on the, on the intake that will remove the turbidity, and if it doesn't, you should make sure it does or put it through a filter bag first, because you don't want all that turbidity going into a fine filter system, um, because it will just clog it up quite quickly. And so it could be a pump filter or it could be a gravity filter. Um, I can talk about a couple of good brands. Um, Katadin makes some good stuff and MSR makes some, makes some good stuff. I don't like the MSR pump filters, the waterworks. I find them quite hard work for the amount of water produced. I prefer the, the Katadin um, pocket filter 
classic ceramic fine uh, filter will filter out protozoa and the larger bacteria um, or the MSR um, gravity works I think it's called the gravity filter is very good as well um, those are the two systems that I use but Catadin makes some smaller ones as well and while we're on filters um, they also make one that has a an activated carbon element to the filtration system which will help remove some of the chemical pollutants so if you are worried about chemical pollutants which you might be by roads for example <clears throat> either because there's pollutants from the vehicles um, particulate matter etc lead maybe um, certainly diesel particles etc um, but also could be fields right next to the road could be pesticides in ditches I know you also mentioned there could be animals and there actually there are it's more likely that you'll find dead animals in ditches next to roads because of roadkill so um, you do want to be treating water from streams and ditches next to roads and you probably want the full works in terms of concern about pesticides etc particularly when you're near farmland of which there is a lot in Europe <clears throat> so activated carbon in your filter but more generally what the filter is doing is filtering out the larger pathogenic organisms okay and doing a very good job of that and why might you want to do that rather than boil well you're not using any fuel you don't need a fire um, it, it's something you can do stop and do for 10 minutes and produce some water um, also the cost per litre is very low um, because the filters will generally last a long time um, you know tens of thousands maybe even hundreds of thousands of litres depending on which one you you purchase and so it will last a long time it will last for your entire journey but um, unless you've got the activated carbon there might still be some um, there will still be some <clears throat> chemical pollutants in there potentially if that's a concern so activated carbon for that and also some of the smaller if you want to be absolute belt and braces for smaller bacteria and definitely if you're worried about viruses um, although as I say it's less likely that they're just floating around on their own with some viruses depend, depending on which viruses we're talking about some viruses you will get in rivers and water um, so like norovirus, for example, you'll get floating around in quite high concentrations, particularly near sewerage works, etc. So you want to make sure that you're getting rid of the deactivating the viruses as well. And since we're pumping um, through a filter, we're not going to be boiling. Yeah? You don't pre-filter and then boil. What's much better uh, in the context of filtering or gravity filtering uh, in camp is then to use some chlorine. Yeah? Chlorine is not great on its own for dealing with a broad spectrum of pathogenic organisms. It doesn't work on things like Cryptosporidium and Giardia, but you've filtered those out with the, um, with the filter. So if you put it through a fine filter, um, like a filtration system, like Catadin or MSR or what have you, then absolute anywhere in the world, belt and braces to make sure that stuff is super safe, chlorine in afterwards for the prescribed amount of time as per the packet for the temperature of the water that will then deactivate any remaining pathogenic organisms. So you've then removed everything, particularly if you've got an activated carbon filter as part of that filtration system. Um, some people don't like the taste of chlorine. Vitamin C will neutralize chlorine. It actually neutralizes it chemically. So don't put it in while the chlorine's still working and don't put chlorine, don't put your water into a container that's had orange juice in it or a vitamin C tablet or something use your chlorine in one container and then maybe mix your vitamin c drink supplement or something in a different bottle or in a cup or what have you keep those things separate 
Um, iodine will also work in there, although it's overkill at that stage. Chlorine dioxide will also work at that stage as well, although that's overkill at that stage. Um, a load of seagulls over there. Um, don't know if you can hear them on the mic, squawking away. Um, so that's one down to fire, burning or flames, boiling, filtration system and chlorine. Um, another solution is um, pre-filtration if necessary with like a filter bag and then you can use chlorine dioxide. dioxide. Chlorine dioxide will neutralize all the pathogenic organisms. So that's quite a good one for an emergency kit. It comes in two little dropper bottles. You mix it and then mix it with the water or put the right amount of drops into the water um, as per the instructions. Um, you can't carry it mixed because it, it disassociates. Um, but it's quite expensive for the volume of water that you can produce and also it's you know carrying it as a liquid so you know I'm not going to go into what the exact right solution is and it might be a combination of solutions so for example on a canoe trip we will use boiling uh, with a campfire when we're in camp we'll we'll often use a gravity filter in camp as well um, but sometimes we'll take a pump filter depending on the size of the group of course and how much weight you can distribute amongst the group pump filter for filling up at lunchtime or during the day or what have you could be useful um, if i was hiking and i wanted to use a filtration system i would get a small pump system um, would be my go-to um, possibly with a with a activated carbon uh, system in it and that that would be the nearest sort of one-stop shop because of course with bike packing you've got some very severe weight and, and space limitations in terms of how much kit you can take um, if you can have campfires boiling in a metal pot is a good solution for getting rid of the pathogens so um, hopefully that gives you an idea now I've, I've tried to stay away from um, recommending equipment other than equipment that I use myself um, there are other good ones out there. Um, but the fundamental thing is to understand what are the problems. There are five problems. And how do we solve them in terms of principles? Um, I don't concern myself with UV lights, particularly not in self-propelled journeys. Yes, you can get clockwork ones, but the, they, they only work under certain circumstances. They work very well under the right circumstances, but they only work under certain circumstances. Um, I like something that's a bit more mechanical, uh, personally. Um, and uh, that will that will do the job. Chemical sterilization works extremely well. Um, just don't put chlorine in visibly dirty water because it won't work. You need to use chlorine dioxide there. Don't get those two confused. Um, and iodine is, I haven't mentioned iodine a ton because iodine isn't really readily available as a water purification chemical in Europe. So um, due to uh, uh, EU biocides directives. So that's that's it you know general principles there um, you probably want to be looking at a small filtration unit of some some type um, combined with some chlorine possibly having some sort of activated carbon filter in there as well uh, it, that will limit the, the, the pumps that you can choose but if pesticides is a particular concern uh, and some of the heavy metals etc I would be looking to have that and I think by the side of roads that's probably something that's sensible Okay, hopefully that answers the question. I think it answers the question. <laughs> Light aircraft. And if you want to learn more about water purification, I mean, there's a lot there already. I mean, there's everything you need to know basically there, but um, there's a whole module on water purification um, in my online elementary. It's a paid course, but it's pretty comprehensive. It's 
Let's do this one. Compass Declination Adjuster. This was a message on... I think this was on Instagram. And this is from Andrew Howard Mills, and this is from a while ago, but um, I think it's a good question, and I haven't, until recently, haven't done Ask Paul Kirtley's for quite some time, so I thought I would still include this because it's a good question. The answer will be useful to many viewers, I hope. So Andrew says, hi Paul, I really enjoyed your latest video and podcast. Your work is by far the best out there. Um, I wish you had time to make more. Well, you kind of jinx things there, Andrew, because I made even less after you sent this. Um, <laughs> I suppose quality over quantity is best. Yeah, well, I can only make what I can make. That's the, that's the, that's the limitation. Um, I'm hoping I'll be able to clone myself at some point and just have the the, the, the sort of answer phone Paul Kirtley that can answer the questions and then the Paul Kirtley that can go off and do other things perhaps. Although there'll probably have to be some communication between the two in terms of the growing experience of the one out doing stuff compared to the one answering all the questions. Anyway, um, I just tried leaving a voicemail question but then when I played it back the sound quality was terrible so I cancelled it. Okay, um, that can be the uh, just the microphone sometimes or the line. Um, like a voice over IP type thing when it goes all wobbly. And my question was, I just bought a compass without declination adjuster. I figured that if measuring declination is important enough for my journey, I should probably do it myself rather than rely on the mechanism. I've heard of the cogs failing on the adjuster. What is your opinion? Many thanks, Paul. Uh, Andrew, okay. Okay, so if you are listening to this or watching this and you've got no idea what Andrew is asking about, um, what he is asking about is a feature on some compasses which allow you to offset two elements of the, the north pointing parts of the compass, let's put it that way in general terms. Because there are a number of Norths, we all talk about North, but when you look at a map, North is generally the top of the map and you follow the grid lines up. But remember, that map is a piece of the Earth's surface that is curved, that's being flattened down. And so that causes some distortion, some stretching at the outside as you push it down, okay? Um, which means that the grid lines don't follow the lines of longitude for, for very long at least. Uh, but the lines of longitude, the ones that if you like, if you think about a Terry's chocolate orange, if you know what one of those is, or just a Satsuma or something, the lines that run from the South Pole to the North Pole, they're actually the lines that go north-south, right? But as you put that on the flat surface and then you put a rectilinear grid on it, they don't match up necessarily, okay? So you've got two different norths there. You've got grid north and you've got true north, geographic north, okay? And then you've also got what the hell your compass does at any given point on the Earth's surface. And everyone, without thinking about it very much, until they do think about it, or maybe even when they do, everyone thinks initially that your, the north pointer on your compass points north. Well, it does, but it doesn't point to grid north and it doesn't point to geographic north. It doesn't align with the lines of longitude. It aligns with the local magnetic field. And the local magnetic field can be all over the shop. P 
partly due to local magnetic rocks. So for example, you go up on the Cooling Ridge in, on Skye, on the, the west of Scotland, the rock there is magnetic and it can throw your compass off. And that's true of other places as well. It's very specific. And you need local knowledge to be aware of that. But more generally, uh, the local magnetic field isn't just straight north-south either. Um, Sir Edmund Halley, who you might know of from Halley's Comet, um, he was uh, interested in the Earth's magnetism as well. And he was he did some expeditions on boats where he was measuring the Earth's magnetic field and he started to draw a map of uh, how it was aligned relative to true north and, and it varies all over the place. So this magnetic variation is something that's been known about for a long time um, or declination as it's sometimes referred to, okay, particularly when you're uh, on land. Um, so we've got this magnetic variation. So what it means is, in simple terms, is that sometimes your compass might be pointing west of true north, and other times it might be pointing east of true north. And then you've also got to know the relationship between um, the map and magnetic north as well locally. And in fact, once you know the relationship between the map and magnetic north locally, you can forget about true north unless you're using natural navigation in amongst your na navigation as well, because of course the Pole Star, the Southern Cross, etc., they're all related to the actual rotational axis and the poles, the actual geographic poles. So you've got three different norths to consider, geographic north, grid north, and magnetic north. But if you're using a map and compass, long as you know the relationship between local magnetic um, the local magnetic field and the map, the grid, then you can translate between the two. Okay. Now, in some places, the difference is very little. Like the 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 north needle will pretty much point uh, to grid, but that can that does vary over time. Like in the UK, it used to be quite a long way west, and it's come back to be much closer to grid north because um, it oscillates backwards and forwards, and it does that everywhere. You can think about sort of molten iron-based rock in the centre of the Earth sloshing around if, if, you, if you want to, um, but just know that it oscillates around. So it's not static, and also there is often a difference between where your compass needle points and where the map says is north. And so you need to be able to translate between the two at, at any given point in time. And you do that using the information that's in the map legend normally on, on the map. Um, and it will tell you that relationship. It could tell you it, it could tell you it graphically or it might just tell you textually. Um, and so what you then have to do is you'll take a map, you'll take a, a, a bearing off your map and then you'll have to adjust that bearing for the local magnetic variation because where your compass is going to point to is slightly, where the magnetic needle will point to is slightly different to what is north on the map. Um, and that, depending on where you are in the world, it can be east or it can be west. So people who've learned a very rigid system of adjustment in the UK, there was a, the systems that are taught within UK Mountain Leader, um, you know, grid to, you know, mag to grid, grid to mag or gummer and mugs and all those things. They only work if, the, if it's west if the magnetic variation is west, if the declination is west. It doesn't work if it's east. 
Yeah, they, they have to be reversed. Yeah, so it's better just to understand what's going on and then just do the, do the adjustment. So that's, that's something that's very valuable um, and you should know how to do, particularly if you're going to places like Alaska or New Zealand, the, the magnetic variation there is quite large um, and as it is in some other parts of the world, whereas places like the UK, uh, at the moment, it's not very big and you almost don't need to worry about it. Um, so, and the question then is whether or not you buy a compass that will make that calculation for you or whether you always make that calculation yourself. And so um, the compass with these little declination adjusters is like a little brass screw and you, you turn it so that the two needles, rather than being on top of each other, they, they offset slightly. So the, the magnetic one is slightly offset effectively when that's lined up with magnetic north, then that's on grid north and it's doing the adjustment for you. It's doing the calculation for you. Let's say like it's five degrees difference. You set that to five degrees difference. And then when you take a bearing off your map, you can then just take your compass straight out and get the needle over the, um, the pointer underneath um, and your compass is going to be pointing in the right direction rather than going, okay, now I need to adjust that manually by five degrees. And equally, if you take a bearing um, on, take a sighting on something and then you want to relate that, maybe you want to do a back bearing off something to, to a linear feature to get your position on the map, you don't need to do the adjustment the other way because the compass is doing it for you. So um, Andrew's asking, is that worthwhile? Um, I think if you're operating in areas where, or you're going to different areas where there is likely to be some magnetic variation, um, a significant amount of declination to adjust for, then yeah, it can be worthwhile. The thing is though, <clears throat> um, I mean, you can use those compasses just like a normal base plate compass as well, um, as long as you just have the declination set to zero. Um, the other thing to be concerned about though is forgetting to change it when you go from one place to another where the declinations are different. That's the other issue uh, that you need to remember about. Um, I've, I've had a compass with that um, system on it for years. I've not had a problem with it clogging up. I would imagine if you get sand or something in there, then possibly it would um, have a bit of a harder time, but I've never had any issues with mine clogging, but that's just me anecdotally. People can leave comments below. So that's basically what Andrew was talking about. Um, I think it's a good system. I don't use it very much, um, if at all, in the UK. I've used it more in other parts of the world, um, particularly when you're tired and hungry and you do the calculation once, you double, triple check it, make sure that you've got your compass set the right way, east or west or what have you, and then you just use your compass like you normally would in places where you don't have to consider the declination. Um, it's just a little bit less mental load. Um, and it can be a useful feature to have if you're really micro-navigating and you need your bearings to be absolutely spot on. But otherwise, it's probably a nice to have. And the more important thing I would say is to understand the fundamentals of making the adjustment from one to the other and why. Um, and then you, you're good, whatever system you've got. Okay. And I think that was it. I'm trying to keep the number of questions low so I can still give full answers without the sessions running into being very long. Yeah, that's it. 
Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. That's been episode 85 of Ask Paul Kirtley. And I would encourage you to look around my YouTube channel as well. Again, people say, oh, it's, you know, you just sit there talking. Well, I do on these shows. That's the point of them, that I can answer people's questions in the same way as if we were just sat here chatting or sat around the campfire or what have you. Um, there are other resources on my YouTube channel, practical stuff you can check out. And there is a world of practical stuff in my, of instruction, technical knowledge in my online courses, particularly the online elementary, really good fundamental, uh, solid foundational course for bushcraft and outdoor life in general. And I would thoroughly recommend that. Um, there are people all over the world in there, uh, North America, so Canada. So I've got people in, from BC, all the way across to Newfoundland. I've got people in right up and down and around the States in there, people in California, people across on the East Coast as well. And we've got people in the UK and Ireland and all over uh, Western Europe and Scandinavia through Central Europe. Um, I've got a couple of uh, students on that course in Japan. And we've also got quite a lot of guys and girls in Australia there as well. Um, at least one military uh, survival school um, has uh, purchased the course as well as a baseline uh, teaching for uh, baseline knowledge and teaching for their instructors. Um, so it's good quality uh, information there. And I hope you look at it. You can get a couple of free samples at um, the online bushcraft courses site. Also, if you jump into my Fire Foundation course, which is a free course, largely made up of just me bringing together lots of free online materials from my YouTube and from my blog, some of which has been buried underneath more recent material, putting it together into a structured, progressive little course. Um, if you jump onto that, there's also a couple of freebies in there out of the online elementary that aren't in the freebies on the on the uh, Bushcraft course uh, site. So you can get some extra insight into what's in that course before you choose to possibly enroll in it, which I hope you do, because I think it's great value. So that's my kind of plug. I keep, people keep telling me I should plug more on my channel. I don't have any, like, again, just to be clear, um, I do not do paid sponsorships. Yeah? Uh, I'm not promoting Audible um, although I think Audible's good. I'm not sat here promoting Audible, getting paid, you know, £2,000 to do so. Um, I'm not promoting outdoor brands um, that are paying me to say stuff is good. Um, I, everything that I say here is free other than, okay, there might be some ads on YouTube, which don't pay a ton, to be honest. Um, but I'm doing this because I feel like information is, good quality information should be put out there. I think you know, I won't answer a question if I don't think I've got a good answer to it. That, that's the other thing. Um, you know, I'm not just sat here answering every single question that's sent to me because I feel like I have to. If there's something I don't know the answer to, I will just write back to the person and say, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to this. Um, perhaps go and talk to this person um, and try and recommend or have a look at this book or, or what have you. Or I think the answer is this, but it's not my area of expertise. Um, you know, I don't know anything about conchoidal fractures. Go and have a chat with that person, or wh whatever it is, right? Okay, so um, I'll, that's where I, and sometimes I'll do that on the show as well if I think it's useful for more people. But you know, when I'm giving definitive answers or answers based on my experience, it's because I feel confident to give that 
and I don't want that view to be oh, baby stink bug just stunk me <laughs> um I uh throw me off my <laughs> I I I want my views to be unsullied by any other influences all right so the way I make my living is by also doing what I do here for free is, is teaching right so I teach field courses I run trips where people also learn as they go and I've also got online resources that are paid most of my online resources are completely free but I do have some structured paid programs which are very well proven I started running online courses quite a long time ago. In late 2013, I started running online courses and they have been honed you know, long before Masterclass turned up or any of these things in your feeds the whole time. I've been doing online learning because I, I, I had a feeling it would work very well. Um, we can do things with online courses that aren't possible on a physical course in the sense that we can jump from season to season or terrain to terrain, location to location, and we can draw in a lot of concentrated information that we that we can't do in the same way on a field course. Now, of course, with a field course, you're getting that um, coaching. You're getting me or one of my colleagues helping you as you go, and you've got a quicker feedback mechanism than perhaps there is on an online course. But there's still a community around the online courses, Facebook groups and, and whatnot, where you can get feedback from other students who are more experienced and further progressed. And you can also communicate with me directly. So there are feedback mechanisms there. It just takes a little bit longer. So there's pros and cons to each. And one of the biggest pros is, you know, however famous or popular I get, and not that I intend to do that, there's only so far people are going to come to do a course with me, a physical course. Okay, and there's only so many I can accept onto a physical course. With an online course, wherever you are, and as I say, there's people all over the world on my online courses, you can jump on that, benefit from it, use your local materials to, to undertake the, the tasks, um, join with a, a great community of people all over the world who are bushcraft enthusiasts, um, and that's what that has to offer. And clearly, I can't do that for free, um, I'm not a charity, so that's paid, but it's cheaper than doing a field course by an order, several orders of magnitude. So um, several multiples, I should say, um, cheaper than doing a field course. Uh, so yeah, there's my sales plug for today. Um, again, people keep telling me they don't, they've just discovered this and why didn't they know about this before? Okay, so yeah, maybe I've, I, I don't like sitting here ramming people, things down people's throats. I like to try and provide value, but um, the paid online courses do provide a lot of value, but they're paid. Um, so that's the slightly different equation, but they are still very good value. And they've got some excellent people in there that you could join as well and be part of that. So hopefully you'll consider that. Certainly grab the, the free uh, samples. Certainly jump onto the five fundamentals course as well. I'll leave the links um, for those underneath the YouTube. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, the links are below. If you're listening, go to my blog, paulcutley.co.uk. Look for this episode. The links will be there with this episode. Um, unless you find links. There are links all over my site, but that's probably the quickest way. Go to Ask Paul Kirtley, episode 85, links. Be about halfway down the page. Links to the Fire Foundations, link to the online bushcraft courses. Um, check them out and uh, see what you think. And I'll see you on another episode of Ask Paul Kirtley before too long. Take care. Enjoy the outdoors. Keep the questions coming. And I'll keep trying to answer them. All right. Take care. Cheers. Bye.